0: CHAPTER NINE OF THE LAST SECRETS BY JOHN Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER NINE, PART Two: MOUNT EVEREST The 1922 party had as its leader Brigadier General the Honorable C.G. Bruce, the supreme authority upon the Himalaya, to the exploration of which he had devoted much of his life. He knew the hill people, too, as no other man knew them, and his advice was invaluable in the selection of porters. The climbers were Mr. Mallory, Mr. Finch, who had been selected for the expedition of the year before but had been unable to accompany it, Mr. Norton and Mr. Somerville, all of whom were trained mountaineers, and Captain Jeffrey Bruce, who had never done any serious climbing before. Major Morsehead was also of the party. The 1921 expedition had discovered what seemed a possible route to the summit by the North Pole, and the new expedition proposed to follow its tracks. It was stronger in personnel than its predecessor, and much stronger in equipment, for it had learned many lessons from the experiences of the year before. Among other things, it carried a supply of oxygen in bottles, and the necessary apparatus to use it the party being resolved to make the attempt before the monsoon broke made straight for the old advanced base camp in the carta valley thanks to general bruce's consummate skill in the organization of mountain travel it reached that point on the date fixed and with everybody in good health the next duty was to establish an advanced camp one stage before the north goal up to which the porters could be brought without undue fatigue the summit of the lakpala was abandoned and an advanced base known as camp number three was established under the west side of the pass close to the east Rongbuk glacier the next step was to ascertain whether the road to the north coal was practicable for when mr mallory's party had travelled it the year before there had been fresh snow and at this early season there was a danger of bare ice Mr somerville and mr mallory on the 13th may with one coolie set forth from camp number no. 3 on a reconnaissance and found that the route they had followed the year before was one sheet of glittering ice they saw however that they could cut their way into a corridor filled with good snow which would lead them up to the foot of the final slope and that final slope proved also to be snow and not ice On the north coal they found a difficulty they had not looked for. Between the point at which they reached it and Everest itself was an ice cliff which the year before they had circumvented. Now they found their way barred by a hopeless crevasse. Ultimately they discovered a route at the far end of the ice cliff and reached the level snow from which the north ridge of Everest springs. The next few days were occupied in bringing up supplies to camp four on the north Coal. they had only nine porters available and this decided them that it would not be feasible to make two camps on the face of the mountain they resolved to attempt to make one camp at about twenty six thousand feet and from that to make their final effort on the nineteenth the four climbers mr mallory mr norton major Moreshead, and mr somerville left Camp 3 at a quarter to nine in the morning, and an hour after midday were busy putting up tents and arranging stores at Camp 4 on the North Gulf. The sun set at 4.30, and they turned in for the night in the best of spirits. On the morrow, they proposed to carry up two of the small tents, two double sleeping sacks, food for a day and a half, cooking pots, and two thermos flasks they would make four loads of the stuff which would give two porters to each load with a man to spare on the twentieth of may mr mallory got up at five a m and found that there was no sign of life in the tents in which the nine porters were quartered the coolies had shut themselves in so hermetically that they were all unwell and four of them were suffering badly from mountain sickness only five were able to embark on the day's work breakfast was a slow business because everything was frozen hard and the dish of spaghetti which they had promised themselves could only be prepared after an elaborate process of thawing a start was made at seven a m and everything went smoothly at first for ropes had been fixed between their camp and the call itself so as to help them on their return from the call a broad snow ridge went up at an easy angle and all the climbers felt that bodily fitness which is the assurance of success then their troubles began the first was the cold the sun had no more warmth in it than a candle and a bitter wind began to blow from the west they came to an end of the ridge of stones on which they had been progressing easily and realized that they must get some shelter from the wind by moving to the east side of the shoulder Step-cutting was now necessary, and at that height the exertion required was extraordinarily severe. Moreover, the cold was telling upon them, and the porters especially suffered badly. After some 300 feet of steps, they rested about noon under the shelter of some rocks at 25,000 feet. It seemed to them that they could not get their loads much higher, and that they had better look out for a camp, the porters had to return to the north coal but a camping ground was not easy to find at last on the east side of the ridge they discovered a steep slab up to which they could level the ground it was a poor place for the incline was sharp most of the floor was composed of broken rocks and men lying down would inevitably slip on top of each other there, however, they placed the little tents, each with its double sleeping bag, and melted snow for their makeshift supper. The porter started back for the north coal, and the climbers, two in each bed, did their best to keep warm. All four had suffered a good deal from the cold. Mr. Norton's ear was badly swollen, three of Mr. Mallory's fingers were touched with the frost, and Major Morsehead was chilled to the bone and clearly unwell the wind dropped in the evening and during the night fresh snow fell at six fifty on the morning of the twenty-first of may they crawled from their sleeping bags and made a laborious and exiguous breakfast for only one thermos flask had turned up at eight o'clock they started none of them feeling their best after the stuffy headachey night major morshead was unable to go with him for his illness had increased and most regretfully the other three went on without him. A good deal of fresh snow had fallen, but the first hours of climbing were not very difficult. The worst trouble was the perverse stratification of the mountain, for all the ledges tilted the wrong way. Slowly they crawled up, first regaining the ridge by turning west, and then following the ridge itself in the direction of the point of the northeast reach they decided that they must turn back at about two o'clock if they were to make the descent in reasonable safety besides they had to consider major Morsehead left alone in camp five at two fifteen they reached the head of the rocks about five hundred feet below the point where the north shoulder joined the northeast area here they had a clear view of the summit the aneroid gave the elevation as twenty six thousand eight hundred feet but it is possible that it may have been nearly 200 feet more. Their advance had for some time been reduced to a very slow crawl, but none of the party were really exhausted. It was wise, however, to turn while they had sufficient strength to get back to Camp 4. They tried moving westward, where there seemed to be more snow, but they found that the snow slopes were a series of slabs with an ugly tilt under a thin covering of new snow. So they went back to the ridge and followed their old tracks. At four o'clock they reached Camp Five and picked up Major Mooreshead and their tents and sleeping bags. After that the going became more difficult, as the fresh fallen snow had made even easy ground treacherous. One slip did occur, and the three men were held only by the rope secured around Mr. Mallory's ice axe. The descent now became a race with a fast gathering darkness. When they got to the snow ridge they could find no trace of the steps they had made the day before and had to cut them all over again at this point they were in sight of the watchers far below at camp three on the glacier major Mooreshead was suffering severely and could only move a few steps at a time as the night drew in lightning began to flicker from the clouds in the west but happily the wind did not rise They were soon at the crevasses and the ice cliff, and as their air was calm, it was possible to light a lantern to guide them. They hunted desperately to find the fixed rope, which would take them down to the terrace where they could see their five tents awaiting them. But the rope was covered with snow, and at that moment the lantern gave out. Happily, somebody hooked up the buried rope, and after that it was plain going to the tents they reached them at eleven thirty and could find no fuel or cooking pots their mouths were parched with thirst and the best beverage they could concoct was a mixture of jam and snow with frozen condensed milk mr mallory ascribes to the influence of this stuff the uncontrollable shudderings spasms of muscular contraction in belly and back which i suffered in my sleeping bag and which caused me to sit up and a hail again great whiffs from the night air, as though the habit of deep breathing had settled upon me indispensably. The four men did not waste time next morning on the north coal, for they were tormented by thirst and hunger. It took them six hours to reach Camp 3, for they had to make a staircase beneath the new snow which the porters could use in order to fetch down their baggage, since they did not intend to spend the night at Camp 3 without their sleeping bags. At midday they were back in comparative comfort, with certain solid conclusions as a result of the venture. One was as to the difficulties of the new snow and the precariousness of the weather. Another was as to the unexpected capacity of the porters. But the most important was as to the need of oxygen. They had reached a point very little below 27,000 feet, and that left 2,000 feet to be surmounted before the summit was reached. For success, a higher camp was needed than camp 5, and the men who started from it must, if possible, have an extra stimulus to counteract the malign effects of altitude. If Everest chose to clothe itself with air containing less oxygen than a man needed, the defect must be supplied. If a climber used extra clothes to counteract the cold, he must use some extra device to supplement the atmosphere. WE COME NOW TO THE SECOND ATTEMPT OF 1922 IN WHICH OXYGEN WAS USED. CERTAIN EMINENT SCIENTISTS AT HOME HAD HELD THAT EVEREST COULD NEVER BE CONQUERED WITHOUT ITS AID, AND THE EXPEDITION HAD BROUGHT A VERY FULL EQUIPMENT, OXYGEN STORED IN LIGHT STEEL CYLINDERS AND A SOMEWHAT COMPLEX APPARATUS FOR ITS USE. THERE HAD BEEN OXYGEN DRILL PARADES AMONG THE PARTY, AND PERHAPS IT MIGHT HAVE BEEN WELL HAD THEY USED IT STRAIGHT AWAY FOR ONE MAIN ATTEMPT instead of making the first effort without it unfortunately the apparatus needed overhauling and it was not till the twenty second of may when mr mallory and his party were coming down from the mountain that four sets were ready for use as to the legitimacy of such a device in mountaineering mr finch's arguments are final few of us i think who stop to ponder for a brief second Will deny that our very existence in this enlightened 20th century with all its amenities of modern civilization is artificial. Most of us have learned to respect progress and to appreciate the meaning and advantages of adaptability. For instance, it is a fairly firmly established fact that warmth is necessary to life. The mountaineer acting on this knowledge conserves as far as possible his animal heat by wearing especially warm clothing. No one demurs. It is the common sense thing to do. He pours hot tea from a thermos bottle and never blushes. Nonchalantly, without fear of adverse criticism, he doctors up his insides with special heat and energy-giving foods and stimulants. From the sun's ultraviolet rays and the wind's bitter cold, he boldly dares to protect his eyes with Crook's anti-glare glasses. Further, he wears boots that to the average layman look ridiculous. The use of caffeine to supply just a little more buck to an almost worn-out frame is not caviled at, despite its being a synthetic drug, the manufacture of which involves the employment of complicated plant and methods. If science could prepare oxygen in tabloid form, or supply it to us in thermos flasks that we might imbibe it like our hot tea, the stigma of artificiality would perhaps be effectually removed. But when it has to be carried in special containers, its whole essence is held to be altered, and by using it, the mountaineer is taking a sneaking, unfair advantage of the mountain. In answer to this grave charge, I would remind the accuser that, by the inhalation of a little life-giving gas, the climber does not smooth away the rough rocks of the mountain or still a storm, nor is he an Aladdin who, by a rub on a magic ring, is wafted by invisible agents to his goal. Oxygen renders available more of his store of energy, and so hastens his step, but it does not, alas, fit the wings of mercury to his feet. The logic of the anti-oxygenist is surely faulty. End quote. On the 20th of May, Mr. Finch and Captain Jeffrey Bruce arrived at Camp 3, accompanied by Tedgebeer, one of the four Gurkha non-commissioned officers lent to the expedition. There they found the oxygen apparatus in bad condition and had to tinker at it for four days. During this period, they made a trial trip to Camp 4 on the North Coal using oxygen. A good deal of new step-cutting had to be done, for fresh snow had fallen, but in spite of that, the oxygen enabled them to get to the call in three hours and return in 50 minutes, with halts to take three dozen photographs. On the 24th of May, Mr. Finch, Captain Bruce, Captain Noel, the official photographer, and Ted's with 12 porters, went up the north call and camped for the night. The next morning, the 25th, brought a clear, windy sky, and at 8 o'clock, the 12 porters with the camp outfit Provisions for one day and the oxygen cylinders started up the north ridge, followed an hour and a half later by Mr. Finch, Captain Bruce, and Tedsbier, each carrying a load of over thirty pounds. All fifteen used oxygen. It was their intention to make a camp above twenty-six thousand feet. But after one o'clock the wind freshened and snow began so it was deemed advisable in order to ensure the safe return of the porters to the north Pole, to camp at twenty five thousand five hundred feet the camping place was no better than that which mr mallory had found the place was on the actual crest of the ridge for the west side was scourged by wind and there was no good position on the east side the tent was pitched on a little platform on the edge of precipices falling to the east Rongbuk glacier four thousand feet below the tent was secured as well as possible by guy ropes but when the climbers got into their sleeping bags it was both blowing and snowing hard and minute flakes filled the tent snow was melted and a tepid meal was cooked A really warm meal was out of the question, for at that altitude, water boils at so low a temperature that man can hold his hand in it without discomfort. As the night closed in, the two climbers comforted themselves with the assurance that next day they would get to the top. But after sunset, the wind increased to a gale so furious that even the ground sheet with three men lying on it was lifted completely off the earth. They blocked up the small openings as well as they could, but before midnight, everything inside was covered with spindrift. It was impossible to sleep. They had to be constantly on the watch to prevent the flaps being torn open and to hold the tent down. For they realized that if once the gale got a hold of their shelter, the whole outfit would be blown onto the glacier below. Few adventurers have ever spent a more awful night. Hedgebeer had all the placidity of his race, and Captain Bruce, who was making his first serious mountaineering expedition on the highest of the world's mountains, was as cheerful as if he had been sleeping in an ordinary alpine cabane. Here is Mr. Finch's own description. Quote, By one o'clock on the morning of the 26th, the gale reached its maximum. The wild flapping of the canvas made a noise like that of machine-gun fire. So deafening was it that we could scarcely hear each other speak. Later there came interludes of comparative lull, succeeded by bursts of storm more furious than ever. During such lulls we took it in turn to go outside to tighten up slackened guy ropes, and also succeeded in tying down the tent more firmly with our alpine rope. It was impossible to work in the open for more than three or four minutes at a stretch, So profound was the exhaustion induced by this brief exposure to the fierce cold wind. Morning broke with no lull in the violence of the elements. They prepared a makeshift meal and spent the forenoon hours in desperate anxiety. At midday the storm seemed to reach the summit of its fury and matters were made more awkward by a stone cutting a great hole in the tent. Mercifully, an hour later, the wind suddenly dropped, and the anxious occupants of the tent could prospect the weather. The sensible thing would have been to make a retreat to the north coal, but there was no thought of giving up. The party were unanimous in resolving to hang on and make the attempt the following day. With the last of their fuel, they cooked supper, a frugal meal, for, since they had only carried provisions for one day, they were now on very short rations as they settled down for the night voices were heard outside and the porters from the north coal appeared bringing thermos flasks of hot beef tea and tea sent by captain noel in a little more comfort they tried to sleep all three however were strained and weak from their labors of the past twenty-four hours and they felt a numbing cold creeping up their limbs Mr. Finch had the happy inspiration to use oxygen and so arranged the apparatus that each could breathe a small quantity throughout the night. Quote, the result was marvelous. We slept well and warmly. Whenever the tube delivering the gas fell out of Bruce's mouth as he slept, I could see him stir uneasily in the eerie greenish light of the moon as it filtered through the canvas. Then, half unconsciously replacing the tube, he would fall once more into a peaceful slumber. Next morning, the 27th, they woke well and hungry, and after a struggle with their boots, which were frozen stiff, started off at 6.30, Captain Bruce and Mr. Finch carrying each over 40 pounds, and Tedgebeer some 50 pounds. Their plan was to take Tedgebeer as far as the northeast shoulder, and there to relieve him of his load and send him back. It was cold, clear weather, and the wind was not too strong. Presently, however, it began to freshen, and after they had gained a few hundred feet, it was Tedgebeer who showed the first signs of weakness. He collapsed entirely and had to be relieved of his cylinders and sent back. The height was about twenty six thousand feet, the highest point which any native had yet reached. In order to move more quickly, Mr. Finch and Captain Bruce dispensed with a rope. The rocks were quite easy, and at 26,500 feet, they had passed two admirable sites for a camp. But the wind was steadily increasing in force, and they were compelled to leave the ridge and traverse out across the great north face. This was bad luck, for the ridge was easy climbing, and the face was not. The stratification of the rocks was most awkward and it was hard to find any good footholds the climbers were unroped and it was a severe test of captain bruce who had had no mountaineering experience to give him confidence sometimes they were on treacherous slopes sometimes on more treacherous snow and they often had to cross heaps of scree that moved with every step they stopped occasionally to replace an empty cylinder of oxygen with a new one each of which meant five pounds off their load. Presently, the aneroid gave their height as 27,000 feet. They now ceased traversing and began to climb straight upward to a point on the northeast ridge, halfway between the shoulder and the summit. Soon, they were at 27,300 feet, and the top of Everest was the only mountain they could see without looking down the peaks which had seemed so formidable from the glacier had now sunk into insignificant humps they were seventeen hundred feet below the summit well within half a mile of it and they could distinguish stones and a patch of scree just under its highest point but it was very clear that they could go no farther weak with hunger and the anxiety and labors of the past forty-eight hours It was plain to Mr. Finch that if they went on even for another 500 feet, they would not both get back alive. Like wise and brave men, they decided to retreat. It was now about midday, and for greater safety they roped together. At first they followed their old tracks and then moved towards the north ridge at a point higher than where they had left it. They reached the ridge at 2 o'clock and there reduced their burden by dumping four oxygen cylinders at a place to which future climbers could be directed. The weather was getting worse. A violent wind from the west was bringing up mist, but happily there was no snow. Half an hour later they reached their camp of the night before, where they found Tedgebeer sound asleep, wrapped up in all three th- sleeping bags. The porters from the north coal were a mile below, and Tedgebeer was instructed to go down with them the rest of the descent was a nightmare the knees of the climbers knocked together and their limbs did not seem to respond to the direction of the brain often they staggered and slipped and often they were forced to sit down but at four o'clock in the afternoon they reached the north coal happily they still felt famished they had not yet reached the limit of a man's strength when hunger vanishes at the north coal they had hot tea and spaghetti and three-quarters of an hour later they started off for camp three in the company of captain noel the journey was made in record time forty minutes and at five thirty they had reached camp three having descended since midday six thousand feet that evening made amends for the long hours of famine Quote, four whole quails truffled in pate de foie gras followed by nine sausages left me asking for more the last i remember of that long day was going to sleep warm in the depths of our wonderful sleeping-bag with the remains of a tin of toffee tucked away in the crook of my elbow captain bruce's feet were badly frostbitten but Mr. Finch had come off scot free, which was neither more nor less than a physical miracle. As Captain Bruce, on the way down to the base camp, turned to take his last close view of Everest, his farewell was, quote, Just you wait, old thing. You will be for it soon. End quote. It was the logical conclusion. He and Mr. Finch had got the 27,300 feet after exertions and deprivations which might well have unfitted a man for the ascent of the rigi these misfortunes were accidental and not inevitable the value the superlative value of oxygen had been abundantly proved it may be fairly said that the 1922 expedition though it had not set foot on the summit had solved the secret of everest the mountain could almost certainly be climbed provided a little luck attended the climbers. Now that the quality of the native porters had been proved, there seems no reason why, with the help of oxygen, a sixth camp could not be arranged on one of the flat places under 27,000 feet, which Mr. Finch noted. A night in such a camp would be no more trying than a night at 25,000 feet. If the climbers, starting from 27,000 feet, and after a good night fell in with reasonable weather, there seems little doubt that the remaining 2,000 feet could be ascended and the peak conquered, with a good prospect of a safe return on the same day to the north coal. There remains, of course, the possibility of physical breakdowns such as happened to Major Morshead and Tedgebeer, but against this may be set the fact that Mr. Mallory, Mr. Somerville, Mr. Norton, Mr. Finch, and Captain Bruce, at great altitudes and after severe physical labor, were not especially distressed, and suffered no bad effects afterwards. The conquest of Everest will always remain one of the most difficult adventures which man can undertake, but it is a reasonable adventure and not a piece of crazy foolhardiness which could only succeed by the help of the one chance in a million. The two reconnaissance expeditions have shown that, for its achievement, every available human resource is necessary but granted the utilization of these resources and the possibility which our familiarity with the lower slopes may soon permit of waiting upon a spell of kindly weather, the ultimate conquest would seem to be assured. The secret of Everest has been solved. We now know that there is a way to the top and we know what that way is. End of chapter 9 This reading by Stephen Seidel End of The Last Secrets by John Buchan